Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, Stay Tuned listeners. I was pleased to learn last week that Stay Tuned has been nominated for a Webby Award for the best individual episode of a podcast. The selection is for an interview I did last year with Bill Browder. As many of you know, Browder became the driving force behind the Magnitsky Act and is often described as Putin's number one foe. So if you haven't already, check out the episode and cast your vote at webbyawards.com. You can also find the link to vote in the show notes to this episode. Hey folks, today is a big day. As all of you probably know, the DOJ is releasing the redacted Mueller report. So we're going to do things a little differently this week. Instead of a regular Stay Tuned episode, we're putting together a special edition all about the Mueller report. I'll be spending the day reading and digesting it. The plan is to post the episode later tonight or tomorrow morning at the latest. Joining me will be my friend, who's familiar to you, former New Jersey Attorney General Ann Milgram, my co-host of the Cafe Insider podcast. We will do a version of what we do every Monday on the Insider pod, make sense of the week's biggest news, which this week is the Mueller report. So please keep an eye out on your stay tuned feed, or we'll email you a link to the episode. If you haven't already, head to cafe.com slash preet. There you can sign up to receive the link to the episode, as well as the Cafe Brief, our newly launched free newsletter. Friday's edition will recap all the Mueller coverage and analysis. That's cafe.com slash preet. For now, I'll talk a little bit about what we might expect and what we'll be looking for in the Mueller report. So here's some questions from you guys about the Mueller report. This one is one of my favorites from Twitter user Tongue of Wood. I said that with a straight face. At Preet Bharara, was the hashtag Mueller report release date chosen to avoid stay tuned Hashtag Aspreet. You know, probably yes. As, as you know, as a loyal listener, the world does revolve around stay tuned. You know, literally as we were discussing amongst ourselves that the worst day for big news is Thursday morning because that's the day that the usual episode comes out. And we do a lot of prep for it and a lot of you know, thinking about it. And I do a lot of taping on Tuesday and Wednesday of the week. But we have resorted to countermeasures. And so today, as I said, quick preview, and we will be back in the studio on Thursday evening after both Ann Milgram and I, rather than resort to hot takes, will have read all of the report. I hope all of the report. I might have to read quickly, depending on how much redaction there is. 
and be in a position to hopefully be thoughtful about what was said. And you'll hear that episode later. Here's another fun question. Twitter user TruthAddict76 asks, Hi, Preet Bharara. What are you doing Mueller's Eve? That's a great question. I'm taping this as per usual on Wednesday morning, April 17th, and tonight I'll be heading to D.C. to be in place at a desk on Thursday morning, bright and early, to read the actual Mueller report. And one of the things I'll probably be doing tonight, uh, in addition to carbo-loading for the marathon of tomorrow, is thinking about what I would be looking for in the Mueller report and thinking about the kinds of questions I'll be asking myself as I read through the Mueller report, uh, reminding myself of some of the history of the investigation, thinking a little bit about the Bill Barr four-page summary and how it might compare to the Mueller report, and just generally getting a good night's rest (laughs) before launching into a lengthy reading session and hopefully be able to say something thoughtful and not stupid about the issues raised in the Mueller report tomorrow. And so here's a non-exhaustive list of the kinds of things I'll be looking for and thinking about with respect to the Mueller report. Obviously, one question is, to whom did Bob Mueller intend to punt the question on obstruction? Was he silent about it? Did he hint that he wanted Congress to deal with it, which has been my suspicion? Or did he leave it open for Bill Barr to grab the ball and make his pronouncement about obstruction? Uh, Obviously, another incredibly important issue is how close a question was the obstruction call. Obviously, I've been predicting for some period of time that there likely will be a substantial discussion of facts and details and conversations and perhaps even documents that suggest strongly that the President of the United States looked like he had the intent to obstruct the Russia investigation. But then on the other side of the coin, there are probably some defenses and some things that are not fully clear and some statements and sentiments that are perhaps exculpatory. So there's evidence on both sides of the question, which doesn't mean there's no evidence, but it doesn't mean he's exonerated. It means that there was evidence on both sides and arguments, maybe more accurately, on both sides of the question of whether a crime was committed, and in particular, the crime of obstruction. That I'm looking really forward to reading closely. And then in parallel fashion, although Bob Mueller was more clear that there was no crime or insufficient evidence of a crime of conspiracy on the issue of involvement and coordination with the Russians in election interference, I still would like to see if there's any evidence of it. I would bet there is some. It just didn't even rise to the level that the obstruction evidence rose to. Then on the question of redactions, what are we going to be able to tell? Uh, Are there going to be uh, narrow? Are there going to be entire pages blacked out? Bill Barr, you'll recall, has said he would indicate the nature of each redaction. And I think he gave four bases for possibilities of redaction. Let's see if I remember them. Material that relates to ongoing investigations, material that's classified, material that relates to grand jury information, and material, as he put it, that unduly might prejudice peripheral third parties. I still don't know what a peripheral third party is, and I'd be curious to see if the redactions may clear the kinds of people who are peripheral. How many redactions? What will the fight be over redactions? And he's identified those four categories and said they're going to be color-coded. So it'll be interesting to see what proportion of redactions fall into each category. And then, of course, how faithful was the summary? You know, that'll be a little bit of a guide to assessing Bill Barr's credibility in terms of the redactions. If it turns out that the summary was not particularly faithful and spun things in a much more positive light than was warranted by the actual report, I think that is a reason to be concerned about the redactions. 
If on the other hand, it looks like it was a very faithful summary, maybe we can have some more faith in the redactions. It remains to be seen. I'm also curious to see what's new in the report, not because new information necessarily has a different legal effect, but there is this sort of political and optics environment that we're in because, among other things, Congress may decide to take up uh, action, to engage in hearings, to pursue impeachment. And I think the likelihood of that happening depends a little bit on whether or not there's new information, there are new revelations, things we didn't know about, conversations that seem salacious and worrisome that Congress might want to delve into more. That's only because of the nature of how momentum builds and develops. If all of it is merely a stringing together in a compelling way of things that are already pretty known or that have been reported in the papers, even if they haven't been confirmed officially by the government or by the special counsel, then I think it's easier for the president to say and his allies to say and for Congress to to agree and concede, this is all old news. And Bob Mueller sort of put the cap on the bottle and we're done. To the extent there's new things, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what the new cycle does. In connection with that, related to that, uh, I'm wondering who talked and whether or not the names of folks are redacted or even if they are redacted, they'll be as easy to identify as individual one was in Michael Cohen's guilty plea. Uh, You've seen reports in the last few days, I'm guessing, that various members of the Trump administration have some level of anxiety and fear that they will be identified as folks who gave information that's derogatory about the president and that there will be some kind of retribution, whether that's, you know, calling them out by name, uh, blacklisting them from, from future work in the government or in politics, taking away their security clearance, any one of the things that the president has engaged in before, I think it'll be interesting to see who talked and how extensively and whether we can know who they are. Going back for a minute to the issue of redactions, on one level, perhaps the most interesting redactions to see, and by see, I mean, you know, to note what the, what the redaction basis is, are the redactions that fall into the category of material relating to ongoing investigations. Because obviously, one of the main, main questions that people are going to want to ask and have an answer to is what happens next. So on some things, the gate is closed and the deal is over. But on other things, we know this for a fact because there's a statement about ongoing investigations. Some things will, will live on either in the Southern District of New York or at the National Security Division or in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office or the Eastern District of Virginia U.S. Attorney's Office and perhaps other places. So if you see a large quantity of things that are redacted on the basis that they relate to ongoing investigations, that is an interesting sign. And, you know, Ann and I will be talking about that also. And then sort of overall, um, I'm a little curious about the style and tone that we'll see in the Mueller report. My guess is, based on other things that have been filed, both memoranda in court, sentencing submissions, uh, criminal indictments, that it will be a non-editorialized document that lays out facts in a compelling way. I assume it will be well-written and then we can follow along redactions notwithstanding that would be very hard to quibble with. You know, to the extent that there are conclusions and there are analyses, uh, maybe those would lend themselves more to arguments on either side. But I'm expecting that a lot of the document will simply be a recitation of facts, dates, times, statements, perhaps even quoted directly that people made, uh, documents that are quoted from directly that were discovered and collected during the investigation. Uh, and I think that's for, for the good. Because the, the less editorializing there is, and the more simple recitation of facts that you see, the more likely it is people will have faith and confidence that the investigation was done rigorously and effectively and thoroughly. 
And then, of course, uh, you know, everyone will be trying to infer what happens next based on the nature of the report. What will the fight over redactions be? What will be the avenues to pursue for Congress, depending on, you know, new bombshells, if any, that drop? How will this affect people's mood for further inquiry by Congress? Will Nancy Pelosi, among other people, and she's an important figure here, stick to her view that she uttered a, a few weeks ago, that maybe impeachment is not worth the effort, not worth the time? Or will there be enough momentum because of new revelations and because of uh, you know, the way the report was written that might fuel further inquiry? I think, I think those are among the major questions. This is, by the way, very non-exhaustive because <laughs> I haven't had, my, uh, haven't had my pasta yet. But those are among the things that, that I'll be looking for, you should be looking for, and that Ann Milgram and I will be talking about. And this one last thing, just about the nature of evidence that I think a lot of people appreciate, but I'm not seeing reflected in some of the commentary, especially by people who have a particular point of view and are close to the president. So proof is proof. Evidence is evidence. And there are lots of things that can be evidence of something, but may not be enough evidence to rise to the level of being able to bring a lawsuit or being able to print in a newspaper or more seriously, being able to use in court to prove beyond a reasonable doubt someone guilty of a crime. And I keep seeing people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders and others, you know, clearly willfully misleading the public as to what evidence means. It is definitely the case, and I think I will not be contradicted on this, that there was some evidence of conspiracy, that there was some evidence, and maybe a substantial amount of evidence, of an obstructive intent. It just didn't meet the threshold for bringing a criminal case. And I keep seeing Sarah Huckabee Sanders say things like, there was no evidence, there was no evidence. The president obviously says, exoneration, exoneration, exoneration. Bob Mueller, as people I think correctly point out, had something of a binary choice, the same kinds of choices that prosecutors generally have. And that is, you investigate, you look at the material, and either there's enough evidence to bring an indictment, which is a very, very, very high standard, or not. And that's it. And then you walk away. But there, there are other purposes, uh, and there are other ways to hold folks accountable, even when you're not talking about the president of the United States. I've used this example before. So sometimes it's the case, I'll pick one you know, particular controversial example, where a police officer was involved in a questionable shooting, and maybe the DA's office will investigate, or sometimes the U.S. Attorney's office will investigate. And because of the high bar of bringing a criminal case, and the need for proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and because the law gives a lot of deference to people who have uh, law enforcement positions, and you can disagree with that, but it happens to be the case, sometimes those investigations, and often those investigations will, to the dissatisfaction of a lot of people, close before a criminal case is brought. Or it's brought to the grand jury, and the grand jury didn't find that the very high threshold for a criminal matter was met, and there'll be no criminal charge. That's not the end of the story for the cop. In police department after police department, the disciplinary authority at the force will usually uh, wait until the criminal investigation is over. And then even after it's over, and there's no filing of a charge, and sometimes even after there's been an acquittal, if there is the filing of a charge, there may still be enough evidence, which is not as much as you need for a criminal case, there may still be enough evidence for the police department to absolutely, legitimately, and lawfully fire the police officer. So you have, and that happens at banks, it happens at companies, all the time, it happens at schools. The standard for indicting a teacher for engaging in some conduct is a high one, just like it is for everyone else. The standard for firing a teacher, disciplining a teacher, for engaging in an abuse of authority as an educator at the school is much lower. And sometimes criminal investigations can yield enough evidence 
to do the second thing, even if it doesn't yield enough evidence to do the first thing. All of which is just a, a sort of an analogy for people to keep in mind as you think about what level of evidence there was with respect to the president's actions on obstruction in particular to gauge how you think someone else, like Congress, should react. Now, just to cover my bases, maybe it's the case that the document is so heavily redacted that the big news story will be the outcry over you know, all the black marks on the document. And finally, by the way, just in case you thought that the only reading you have to do is the 300-something page Mueller report, redactions aside, we're told that there will be something else to read, and that is the president's counter-report. And there are different stories in the newspapers about how long that counter-report is, which I presume will be unredacted. It will be interesting to see what they say and to what extent they anticipated the things that Bob Mueller had to say. seems odd to me if they were going to put that out simultaneously. Maybe it'll come later in the day. Maybe it'll come the next day. But obviously, the president and his allies have a substantial interest in how the Mueller report gets reported in the news and what the reaction is and whether it's a yawn or whether there's an outcry. So a lot of work. I'm going to sign off now. Stay tuned for the special episode with Ann Milgram and me coming shortly. Hey, listeners. I think most of you know by now that I wrote a book. It's called Doing Justice, and it's a New York Times bestseller. If you want to learn more about it, or buy it, head to doingjusticebook.com. Thanks for your support. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper, and the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 